Nearly 50 years ago now, a Motorola engineer named Marty was given a new assignment. He was asked to lead a team in developing the next generation of car radio telephones. But before he jumped in, Marty took a step back, paused, and asked a profound question. Why is it that when I want to call and talk to a person, he asked, that we have to call a place? Why is it that we used to, when we want to talk to someone, we have to call their house, their office, or in this situation, their car? And that question changed the trajectory of his work, and it refocused his team on untethering a person from a place when taking a phone call. And the result of that question and subsequent development was the creation of the world's first cell phone. The first cell phone was made on a prototype, the Dynatac 8000X, affectionately named the Brick. As some of us think back to our first cell phones, the Brick is a good nickname for those as well. It cost $4,000 and it had the exceptional battery time of 20 minutes. And now, cell phones are everywhere. Nearly all of us have them. Nearly all of us have smartphones. Our smartphones now have millions of times the computing power of those rockets that first landed us on the moon. All of that computing power in our pockets, all of that computing power to text our friends, to argue on Facebook, and to send one another memes. There's a trend on social media right now where parents will ask their teenagers and sometimes elementary age kids to pretend like they're talking on the phone. Now, if you and I did that, we'd probably do something like this, right? We pretend to talk on the phone. But now, those kids 16 years and younger, many of them, when asked to pretend like they're talking on the phone, will do this. Pretend like they're talking on a smartphone. We've come a long way in almost 50 years. This explosion in technology, this new revolutionary way to communicate, began when Marty asked the right question. Why is it that when I want to call and talk to a person, I have to call a place? And that's true not only for the cell phone, but for all sorts of innovations and inventions. It starts with asking the right question. Albert Einstein was quoted as saying, If I had an hour to solve a problem and my life depended on it, I would use the first 55 minutes determining the proper question to ask. For once I know the proper question, I could solve the problem in less than five minutes. Asking the right question. Jesus, it seems, is very interested in the right question. What was common practice in those days was a back and forth between rabbis, a questioning back and forth. We might find that incredibly frustrating because our society is less interested in the right question and far more interested in the right answer. My wife, Heather, went to Catholic high school in Chicago, and she tells me that her least favorite teacher was Brother Michael. And Brother Michael taught by the Socratic method. So that meant that Heather and her classmates were graded on the quality of their questions and not on their answers. Heather absolutely did not like that. She couldn't stand it. She said, it's not an objective way to grade somebody. Grade me on my objective answers and not on my subjective questions. When I was serving my former congregation in Missouri, I would lead our college ministry on Sunday nights. And we would have Bible studies and discussions of faith. College is a really important time for those sorts of discussions. That students are, for the first time in their lives, away from their parents and away from their home congregations. 
And so they are asking for the first time those important and profound questions about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian. And those questions were often directed my way. And my response was often to return their question with another question. And it frustrated them. Can't you just give me the answer, they would say. And I would almost never answer them directly. And it's not because I wanted to frustrate them, but it's because in reflecting on my own faith journey, I know that there is power in asking those questions. That having space to ask those questions without someone immediately giving you the answer can be transformational. I know it was transformational for me, and I wanted to offer them that space as well. Asking the right question. The story we read just a few minutes ago is filled with questions. There's a back and forth between Jesus and a legal expert. This was a biblical scholar, someone who knew the Bible inside and out, someone who knew the right answer to the question of what is the most important commandment in the Bible. Of all the rules and the regulations, of all the thou shalls and the thou shall nots, he knew how to distill it down. Love God with every fiber of your being. Love God with every atom and cell in your body. And secondly, and on the same level, love your neighbor as yourself. So far, so good. Jesus and this legal expert are in agreement. But the legal expert has another question. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And the lawyer's question is often our own question. Who is my neighbor? It's an important question, especially in these divisive times. Who is our neighbor? Is my neighbor only the one who looks and acts and prays like me? Is my neighbor someone who lives in another nation? Is it one who lives on government aid? How about those of another race? Are they my neighbors? Is it the person that I don't like? Is it the person I can barely stand to be in the room with for more than five minutes because they annoy me so bad? Is that person my neighbor? And we here at Greenfield, with our progressive approach to faith, our caring community, our emphasis on mission, we are quick to answer that lawyer's question. Yes, everybody is our neighbor. We host SOS, we collect clothing for Welcome In, we donate at Christmas time to places like Freedom House because we believe our neighbors are especially those who are hurting, who are poor, who are hungry, or who have no place to live. Maybe the lawyer is struggling with who his neighbor is, but we certainly aren't. But there's another question, and that question comes after Jesus tells this story. The story that we've come to know as the parable of the Good Samaritan is one of Jesus' most well-loved and highly treasured. The story is so familiar that even someone who hasn't read the actual story at least knows the character, the fictional character, the Good Samaritan. The other day, Heather was leaving work and uh, she got buried into the parking lot by the snow plows. And so I texted her back. I said, are there any Good Samaritans who can help you? Hospitals and uh, charity organizations have been named after the Good Samaritan. Some of you may be fans of the sitcom Seinfeld. In the final episode of that show, the main characters witness a carjacking, and instead of helping, they crack jokes. Kramer films it on his camcorder. And if you watch that show, you know it's typical of the things that those characters did. They are then subsequently arrested, charged, and found guilty under the Good Samaritan law. 
which states that if you see someone in distress, we not only have a moral obligation, but a legal obligation to offer reasonable assistance. And some of you are laughing because you know that episode of the show. The story Jesus tells us is about a man who is traveling alone down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that road was well known for having bandits or thieves who would lie in wait and attack traveler, tra- people who were traveling alone. It's just the, the sort of thing that happened along that road. It's like saying I was speeding down 696. It's just what happens on that road. The man is predictably mugged, beaten by those robbers and left clinging to life in the gutter. It's a common sight. And in the story, the priest and the Levite pass by where the man was, and they keep on walking. And a lot has been made about this. Conversations about them not wanting to be ritually unclean. They had more important matters to attend to. There's also the suggestion that that the bandits would leave bodies in the gutter and then attack those who went to help them. It's good practice that when we come to stories like this to not flatten out characters like the priest and the Levites. They are not all bad or evil people. They are human. And their presence in the story confronts us. That we often in our own lives find ourselves in the position of the priest and the Levites. That we too are confronted with suffering injustice and so many more lying bleeding in the gutter of life. And we too have passed by. This is the season of Lent, after all. The time of being honest about our sins and our need for healing and transformation. We pray the prayer of confession together every week because we acknowledge among the things we have done wrong and the good that we have failed to do is that we have at times passed by those who are in need. And we pass by for any number of reasons. We're too busy. We simply don't have the energy. We're worried about our own safety. And yes, we might even pass by because we are rushing off to do spiritual things. The priest and the Levite are not all bad or all evil people. And neither are we for the many times in our own lives where we have missed those lying in the gutter. We are human beings. And we as human beings often fail to get it right. And that's why we believe in a gospel of grace that forgives us for the good that we have failed to do, a gospel of grace that helps us to do better next time, a gospel of grace that helps us to live up to the ideals of our faith, a gospel of grace that that gives us the courage to stop amidst the suffering, the injustice, and the pain of the world, to offer our aid and solidarity, a gospel of grace that helps us to live up to the ideal of who we seek to be, Because the Samaritan is certainly the ideal. He is certainly the person we want to be. In the question of who is my neighbor, he is the one who draws near to the man who is lying in the gutter, bleeding and bruised and barely clinging to life. He is the one who, despite the risks, stops wherever he is going. That the Samaritan is the hero of this story and subsequently an example to us would have been shocking not only to the lawyer who asked the question, but also to anyone else who was listening. Samaritans were outsiders. They were religious heretics. They were ethnic others. But he is the one who crosses the boundary, the boundary of race and ethnicity and religious hatred. 
He's the one who not only sees the man suffering, but he's the one who is moved to action to change his circumstances. He puts him on the back of his own donkey and brings him to an inn. He takes two full days' worth of wages and says, that should cover most of what he needs, and if he has any other needs, just let me know. Send me the bill. And as that story ends, Jesus asks asks one final question. Who was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? Who was a neighbor to the man who encountered the thieves? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks, who was a neighbor to the man who was in desperate need? That's an entirely different question, isn't it? Those questions are asked from two very different vantage points. Who is my neighbor? That's asked from a position of power. We can offer an answer to that question. We can say that my neighbor is the poor, those of another race, those, that person that really ticks me off. We can say, yes, God loves all of those people and they are my neighbors. We can and we should affirm those in the strongest possible terms. But the question, who was a neighbor to the man in desperate need? That question is flipped around and asked of us. It's a question asked not from the vantage point of the priest or the Levite and not even of the Samaritan. It's a question asked only of the man lying on the roadside. Who would he consider to be a neighbor? Only he can answer that question. And that's a much more difficult question. It's a question that confronts us, but it's the the right question that needs to be asked. It's a sort of question that can fundamentally change the way we engage in our collective ministry. To ask not who is our neighbor, but who would consider us to be a neighbor. That's a a justice-oriented question. It's a justice-oriented question because it asks of us, have we moved close to those who are lying in the gutter and sought to change their circumstance? It's justice-oriented because it takes the focus away from us and that question of who are we supposed to love, and instead it asks it of the victims of injustice, the, the victims of oppression, exploitation, and violence. And that question, I think, transforms this parable from simply a story about someone who stopped to meet someone's immediate needs to a parable of justice where we are we identified as neighbors, identified as people who are joining with the struggles for the liberation of others. It gives those on life's roadside agency in this conversation of neighborliness. Have we been their neighbor? It asks them that question. Where have we succeeded and where have we fallen short in being their neighbor? There are certainly places in our lives where we have succeeded in doing that. But in asking that question, we will have to be ready for the answer. Be be ready for how asking that question reveals the places where we have room to grow. There have been a lot of lessons from this pandemic. And one of the, the primary ones, I think, is how many there actually are who are lying along life's roadside. Not only that, but how many are actually in great danger and in great risk of being along life's roadside. It has revealed, I think, the gross inequalities of our society that we would not have otherwise realized. So for those who are left along life's roadside, 
for those who are struggling beneath the heavy yoke of generational and systemic poverty, for those who have been crying out in the streets for racial justice, for those who are refugees from civil and political violence, for those who are hungry, who among them would say we are their neighbors? It's a question that inspires and challenges us all at the same time. It inspires us to continue on in being neighbors in those places where we are already neighbors. And it challenges us to grow in that work of neighborliness for those that we might have missed. For all of those who are lying along life's roadside, who would say we have been their neighbors? It's the right question. And asking the right question always has a profound impact on the ways that we carry on our our mission and ministry, the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. Asking the right question is always the starting place. Thanks be to God. Amen.